Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We'll read to verse 18. You could call this passage Christology 101. Verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the church, the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we're about to exposit your word, peer into your word, read your word, discover your word. I pray, Lord, that we would do so with reverence. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand, that you would just, just remove all distraction from us, God, in Jesus' name, and that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, make us full with your Holy Spirit, each one of us, that we can receive from you the things that you want us to receive this morning. Thank you for the life-giving words of Scripture. And thank you for Jesus and the revelation of Jesus. And I pray that we would leave here seeing Jesus more clearly. In Christ's name, amen. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27... Jesus asked a question which would reverberate throughout time and throughout the world. He asked the question, who do men say that I am? And what's amazing about that question is that it hasn't lost any relevancy at all. The very day Jesus asked that question, who do men say that I am, its importance hasn't been lost. Even today, that is the most important question of all. Who do men say that I am? So some things have changed about that. In Christ's day, when he asked that question, the number of answers and the number of opinions that could have been brought forth were comparatively small to the numbers of opinions that could be brought forth today. Right? When Jesus asked that question, the disciples answered by saying, well... Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. But most of the Roman world, when he asked that question, didn't even know who Jesus was. The Pharisees thought that he was a demon-possessed blasphemer. Now today, it's been about 2,000 years since that question was asked. And most people in the world have heard about Jesus and many conclusions have been drawn about Jesus, right? 
You don't hear people today say, well, I think he's John the Baptist, right? But you have no less bizarre ideas. Because today, people might say, well, I believe Jesus is the Buddha, or a Buddha, right? Or I believe Jesus is some highly evolved moral being, right? Or some say, Jesus is a prophet like Mohammed was a prophet. Or some say, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not God. Some people say, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah at all. As a matter of fact, I believe he is the greatest test for Israel to know whether they would follow the commandments or not. Still others will say, I believe he's a good teacher. And others will say, I don't believe Jesus existed at all. Who do men say that I am? Jesus followed up that question with another one. Because it's one thing to answer the question, who do men say that I am? For that, you can go to a classroom, right? You can go to a, a university and discover the answer to that question. Who do men say that I am? But the follow-up question is this, and he makes it personal. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's intensely personal now and inescapable. You have to answer that question. Every person has to answer that question, and you can't avoid that question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Have you answered that question? Have you come to a conviction in your life about who Jesus is? If you need some help answering that question, I'll help you. There are only three valid options you have when you think about the question, who is Jesus? He is. Here's your three valid options. One, Jesus is a liar. So everything Jesus said was a lie. That's one option. The second option is, Jesus was crazy. Everything Jesus said, he wasn't lying. He really believed what he said about himself, but he was, he was deluded about himself. He thought wrongly. And the third option that's valid is that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, the Lord of all. And you might ask, well, why does it only have to be these three? What about all the other ones that we listed just a moment ago? Because only these three actually take seriously the historical facts about Jesus. If you say Jesus never existed, you're ignoring the historical facts about the life and the death of Jesus. If you say that Jesus was a Buddha or a highly evolved moral being or a good teacher or a prophet like Muhammad or the Messiah but not God, if you say one of those many things that we already listed, you're ignoring the historical facts about what Jesus said about himself. You're ignoring the facts about his life. You're basically just making up a Jesus that's fictional. And you're thinking things about a fictional Jesus, and you're ignoring who Jesus actually said he was. But if we take all the facts together, then we only have three valid options. That is, he was either lying, he was crazy, or he was who he said he was. Now, someone who claims to be the Son of God, someone who claims the worship of the whole world, 
and someone who claims to have power over the grave and power over the grave for everyone who believes in him is either lying, crazy, or, in fact, who he says he is, right? The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote the text that we read this morning, he once was convinced Jesus Christ was a blasphemer. And Paul dedicated all his energy to putting down the movement that believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was convinced he deserved the death on the cross that he had. Paul was convinced that when Jesus died on the cross, that's what he, he got exactly what he deserved. And anyone who would believe that he was the Son of God ought also to likewise be punished. But now we find Paul writing these amazing words. Now we find Paul saying that Jesus is his God, his Lord, and the reason for his existence. The Apostle Paul's mind changed. Anyone's mind who's hostile against Jesus can change. Do you believe that? That any person, maybe you or maybe someone you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, in what Jesus said about himself, your mind can change, just like Paul's mind was changed. See, Paul realized when he met the Lord finally, he learned that Jesus wasn't a blasphemer, but Jesus was in fact the Lord of all. And on that day, he actually asked Jesus, he says, who are you, Lord? Right? And that wasn't a who are you, Lord, in defiance and skepticism. That was a who are you, Lord, in surrender and submission to who Jesus was. Lord, who are you? Because whatever you say, I'll believe at that point. He learned that far from Jesus deserving the death on the cross, actually, it was Paul who deserved the death of the cross and that Jesus had died on the cross for him because he loved him. Paul learned of the love that Jesus had for him. The man who despised him, persecuted him, he realized that that very one was the one who loved him and had given himself for him. And it was that knowledge that transformed the Apostle Paul's life. The rest of his life was uh, captivated by the love of God that he learned in Jesus Christ. In our text before us here, we don't have three options for determining who Jesus is. We have three declarations of who Jesus Christ is as the Lord of all. Paul now declares three things about Jesus, who he is, who this man is, the man Christ Jesus, the historical man. He says three things about him, and we're going to look at these three things this morning. The first thing he says about Jesus, or he declares and reveals about him, is that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. The second thing he declares about Jesus, this is the astounding fact about Jesus, Jesus is the source, the sustainer, and the purpose of all creation. All creation has its source, it's sustained, and it exists for the one purpose of Jesus Christ. That's a big thing to say about Jesus the man, isn't it? 
And the third thing he declares about Jesus is that Jesus is the head of the church, the new creation. Jesus is the head of the new creation. And by these three things, we see a full picture of the man, Christ Jesus, of who he is. This man who lived, died, rose again. We have a full picture of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we have a full picture of Jesus Christ. Because when we have a full picture of Christ, we can rest complete in him. But an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is leads to an incomplete person, an incomplete Christian. And that incomplete Christian will always be searching for other, in other places to find completion to his supposed incompletion. So as long as we have an in, a deficient view of Christ, we're always going to be looking for more. But when we have a full and complete view of Jesus and who he was, then we don't need to look for more. We see that everything we need is met in Jesus Christ alone. You don't need a man, a church, a temple, or anything like that. Everything you need is met in Christ. And then you can rest in his completeness. So these are the three things we're going to look at now. Number one, Jesus is the revelation of the Father. Verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Now I'd like to look at three verses in the Gospel, three passages in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John really highlights this concept of Jesus, the Son, revealing God the Father. So the first passage I want to look at is in, in John chapter 16. So turn with me there to John chapter 16. John 16, verse 2 and 3. And as I read it, notice very carefully what it says about God and about the Father. John 16, 2 and 3. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he does God a service. And these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Wow. To Jesus, it's not enough to believe in God. According to Jesus here, it's not enough to merely believe in God. Because he says here that there are those who will kill you thinking they're doing God a service. These are people who believe in God. These are people who go to synagogue. And you can put into the synagogue church or mosque or whatever else. These are people who believe in God, and yet Jesus says they don't know the Father. They don't know the Father. They don't know God. They believe in God and they don't know him. Because it's not enough to have a belief in God, that God exists. The important thing is that you know who God is. That you know who he is. And it's for this reason, we've seen in Jesus' day, why they put him to death, why they put the apostles to death, and throughout history and even in our own day, we see people, right, who in the name of God, people who believe in God, do all sorts of horrible things, don't they? Whether it be flying airplanes into buildings, whether it be marching on Jerusalem and slaughtering all the inhabitants in Jerusalem, 
the Crusaders, etc., etc., right? And for this reason, many people reject God, reject Christ, reject Christianity, and reject religion because they see people who in God's name, in the name of religion, in the name of Christ, do these things. But to reject God because of people who don't even know God is a great mistake, isn't it? So, you see here, Jesus says, it's not enough to believe in God. But the real test, the real thing that's important, is whether you know the Father. It's never enough for you unless you know the Father. And that was the mission of Jesus. He came to declare the Father. He came to show us who the Father was, to show us not just that there is a God, but who that God is, his character, his person, his nature. That was the mission of Jesus. The second passage in John, flip back a page, well, a page in my little Bible, John 14, verse 7 to verse 10. Jesus again speaks. He says, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Philip says unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say then, show us the Father? Believe. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Here Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, Philip had seen the Father. He didn't even know it. He was just ignorant of that fact. But he says, Philip, haven't you learned the lesson yet that having seen me, you've seen the Father? Having heard me, you've heard the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To hear him is to hear the Father. To behold Jesus' works is to behold the Father's works. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the express image of his person. When you see Jesus, you see the Father who is invisible. You're never going to see the Father. He's invisible. But to see Jesus is to see the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, I don't do anything of myself. Only, I, I only do what the Father wills me to do. Now, sometimes we have this view that Jesus Christ is the one who is the hero coming down to save us from the mean old father, right? And Jesus himself repudiates that. He says, no, I don't do anything of my own will, nothing. It's all the Father's will. Everything I say, the Father told me to say. Everything I do, the Father told me to do. And I'm just obedient to what the Father tells me to do. When we see Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and saying, Father, forgive them, 
Do we see Jesus trying to effect a change in the Father's disposition towards men? What do you see when you see Jesus? Do you just see Jesus and it stops there? There's this wonderful man who's doing these wonderful things. Is that how far you see? Or when you see Jesus, do you see the Father? And when you see Jesus shedding his blood and giving his life and loving the world and crying out, Father, forgive them? Do you see the Father who loved the world and gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Do you see the Father? Or do you see Jesus trying to change the Father's attitude towards man? Or Jesus as a revelation of the Father's love towards man? What do you see when you see Jesus? Last passage in John, before we go back to Colossians. John chapter 1, verse 17. The first chapter in John is extremely important. It really lays the foundation for the entire book. And we see here in John 17, John 1, 17 and 18, really the purpose of the Gospel of John. It says here, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has declared the invisible God. He has shown us what God is like, who God really is. Now here it says that Moses brought the law, or the law came by Moses. God gave the law to Moses. Now the law is, in fact, a revelation of God. Do you believe that? Now when we get to the New Testament, we don't forget everything the Old Testament has shown us about God, right? Now some people think that way. They think the Old Testament isn't even necessary anymore. You don't even need it. It's really just all about the New Testament and the New Testament revelation of who God is. In fact, they think that the New Testament makes the Old Testament obsolete or irrelevant. That's not true. The law came through Moses, and the law is a true revelation of, some, of, of God, about who God is. God is a God of justice. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of wrath. God is a God who punishes sin and does not overlook iniquity. This is what we learn from the Old Testament. We learn that God is holy, righteous, and just. And that when you sin, you'll never get away with it. This is what we learn about who God is. You could sum up the Old Testament. He will not acquit the guilty. But to only know that about God is not to know God. Because it says in John chapter 1, no one's seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, has declared him, which means in a sense, Moses didn't truly declare who God was. To know God as a God of law is in a sense to know something about a person, but not to know that person. Now you can know things about a person, right? You can know a lot about Nathan before you really know who Nathan is. 
It's like knowing someone's physical appearance, how many siblings they have, where they work, what their favorite food is, and yet not knowing who they are, not knowing that thing about them that really makes them who they are, their, their essence. Because you can open up a book and read about George Washington. You can study all things about him and not really know him. And so it is that without Jesus, you can't know God. Any person who doesn't know Jesus does not know God, no matter how many true things they know about God. You may meet a, a, a pious Jewish man, maybe a rabbi, and he can tell you all sorts of truth about the Old Testament. He doesn't know God, doesn't know the Father. The weakest, most immature Christian knows the Father more than that rabbi. That might be insulting for him to hear. Because to know God is to know the Father through Jesus Christ. It's to know that God is, as it says here in John 1.17, full of grace and truth. To know God is to know God as a God of grace. To know God is to know God as the one who loves sinners and gave himself for sinners and offers forgiveness and is merciful towards sinners even though they don't deserve it. This is what it is to know God through Jesus Christ. Until you know that, you don't know him. But when you do know him in that way, you don't merely know him from a distance, but you know God in the bosom, as it says here in John. Isn't that beautiful? The only begotten son which is in the bosom of the father. That means Jesus is so intimate with the father, and yet he's declared to us who God is from that place of intimacy. The bosom of the Father. Let me just say that again. If you know God as Father through Jesus Christ, you don't know God from a distance, but you know him in his bosom. Isn't that wonderful? It's like you're as close as you could possibly be with him, resting on his bosom, and you know him when you know him through Jesus as Father. So back in Colossians chapter 1, flip there with me. This is why Paul, a few verses before, tells us to give thanks unto the Father who has made us meet. Verse 12 in Colossians chapter 1, he says, Give thanks to the Father because the Father has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. The Father has sent his Son. The Father has made us meet to be partakers of the saints in light. The Father has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. The Father has done this. And so give thanks unto the Father. When we see Jesus, we ought to give thanks to God the Father for for sending and giving his son. So this is it. The first revelation, or the first declaration about who Jesus is, is that he is the revelation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. You see the Father. And always remember that. That's the first thing. The second thing about Jesus that's declared here is that he's the source, the sustainer, and the purpose 
of all creation. This is from verse 15, the second part, to verse 17. Jesus is the source, sustainer, and purpose of all creation. Now, some have erroneously thought from verse 15, when it says he's the firstborn of every creature, that Jesus himself is part of the creation. You see, because they say, well, it says here he's the firstborn of every creature. So doesn't that mean that he himself was created? But that idea is refuted by Paul in the next verse, for it says twice, for emphasis, by him were all things created. So whatever was created was created by him. And that includes invisible things and visible things. That includes angels and that includes men. That includes powers, principalities, and powers. Things in heaven and things on earth. Whatsoever was created was created by him. God is God, and God isn't created. So because Jesus is God, Jesus was not created. If he had been created, he could not be God, and yet we know God, and we know Jesus is God. What does the firstborn of every creature mean then? Here is Matthew Henry on this. He says, this signifies his dominion over all things, as the firstborn in a family is heir and lord of all. So he is the heir of all things. What that means is that he's likened to the firstborn. That what it's speaking of here is not that he was created, but simply that as a firstborn has all the rights and all the privileges and the predominance. So Jesus has the predominance over all creation. He has the predominance over all things. This is, of course, speaking of Jesus the man, the image of the invisible God, the man Christ Jesus, who himself was born of a woman. And he's saying he has the predominance over everything. And yet, here's a little mystery. Everything was created by him. Everything was created by that man, Christ Jesus. He is the heir and the Lord of all. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to know that this statement, the firstborn of all creation, was actually a Jewish expression that they would apply to Jehovah. So they didn't mean to say, and Paul doesn't mean to say, that Jesus himself was created as some people think he was. But simply, it carries that idea of predominance. And the Jews would even apply that to God. And in Psalm 89, verse 27... It speaks of the Messiah. It's a messianic promise. God says, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. So higher than the kings of the earth explains what it means to be the firstborn. And he's speaking of the Christ. I'll make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. He has the predominance. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Notice here now, in verse 17, Jesus isn't only the source of creation. That means everything that was created was created by Jesus. I know that's amazing. That kind of goes over our head, right? How do you grasp that? But it also says in verse 17 that he's not only the source of creation, but he's also creation's sustainer. Literally, it says here, and by him all things are held together, present tense, presently held together 
Wallace's atoms are presently held together by Jesus Christ. Not only did our existence originate from Jesus, but it is presently right now because of Jesus the man. That's a big thing to say about Jesus. This speaks of his relation to creation, past, present, and there is also a future. So Jesus has a relation to our creation's past, to its present, and to its future. The hope of a restored creation, of course. Here's what Herbert Carson writes about this. He was the vicar of St. Paul, St. Paul's. He says, Indeed, Christ is not only the agent of creation, but of preservation. The philosopher may seek for a principle of coherence, a unity amid the diversity of the world of sense. But in the Son, the believer finds the true principle of coherence. It is his power alone which holds creation together. Now, up on campus, I talk to a lot of people, and I've talked to a lot of people around the universities of the country, and this is a big thing. The philosophers trying to find some cohesion to creation. How does it stay together? How come tomorrow everything just doesn't disappear? Why is there order in nature? And many philosophers have committed suicide trying to find the answer because they come to the realization there is no answer in their Christless search for an answer. And their Christless philosophies can't deliver an answer. So rather than turning to Jesus, they blow their head off because they despair of having any cohesion in the universe. And you can't live without that. The one who mocks the Savior mocks the one who holds their atoms together. And it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so that the one who believes in Jesus is exceedingly rich. You are rich if you possess Christ. You have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that the philosophers seek for. What holds the world together? They ask, and you can answer, Jesus Christ. There's two reasons why Paul says this about creation. That Jesus is the source, sustainer, and purpose of creation. There's two reasons. There's two things he wants to show. And one, he wants to show that it is not the angels who are the source and the sustainer and the purpose of creation. But it's Jesus. Because there was this notion that the angels are God's agents of creation. It's the angels that hold everything together. And it's the angels that should be appeased and worshipped. Paul undercuts it all by saying, no, no, Jesus creates the angels and he sustains the angels too. It's Jesus alone, God, that to whom belongs all worship and adoration and respect. So that's the first reason why he says this. And the second reason is to show that the past, present, and future purpose of creation is Jesus. That means that the reason why in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth was for the purpose of revealing himself in Jesus Christ. And why the world still exists today is for the purpose of revealing himself in Jesus Christ. And the future prospect of creation and all its restoration is for the purpose of revealing himself as Father in Jesus Christ. 
This is why everything exists. If somebody asks you, what's the purpose of life? The revelation of the Father in Jesus Christ. It all exists for him. That's what it says here. Verse 16 at the end. All things were created by him and for him. That's the reason. For him who is the image of the invisible God. Everything has been made for that. So if you do believe in Christ and know the Father, then in you has been fulfilled the purpose of creation. Until you have come to believe on Jesus Christ as he is in truth, then you haven't come to fulfill the reason for your own existence. And lastly, the last declaration about Jesus here in verse 18 is that Jesus is the head of the church, the new creation. The emphatic point here is that he and he alone is the head of the church. Now, in the Roman Catholic tradition, it is believed that Jesus is the proper head of the church, but they also believe that there is a pope, a human man, who is called the ministerial head of the church. So they say that the pope is the head as well, and they actually believe that if there were no pope, Jesus would be an impotent head if there were no pope, because the pope is to serve and act as his substitute He's to function as his substitute. And if Jesus doesn't have a substitute, then he's an impotent head. Now, sure, he's the head proper, but you need to have a substitute on earth that can function as the head. This is in the Roman Catholic tradition. But Paul's refuting this very idea by saying, Jesus is not merely our head proper. Jesus is the head of the church, the living, functioning, all-sufficient head of the church. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul says, if you don't hold the head, then you won't receive nourishment because nourishment comes from the head. If you don't hold to the head, then you're going to get way off the beam. Strength, understanding, unity, direction, everything comes from our living head. Not an impotent head, but the living head, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. So anyone that would say you need a, another person in between you and Jesus, is lying. There is only one head. He alone. He is sufficient for you as a Christian. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is sufficient for you as, a, as your leader? As your head? As your master? As your nourisher? Do you need anyone else in between you? He and he alone. What is also here in verse 18 is the idea of a new creation. Because he says here that the church, Christ is the head of the church, Christ is the beginning, he is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. And the sense here is that Christ isn't the only one who's going to be resurrected, but that all who belong to Jesus will likewise be resurrected from the dead to newness of life because he has become the firstborn from the dead. Actually, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he's the first fruits from the dead, and that when he returns, then everyone else will rise too. This is the new creation that's in Jesus Christ. So we have a glorious new identity as Christians, a new life as Christians. 
and he is our head. The church, you could even say, you could describe the church as all those who will be raised incorruptibly. If you're not going to be raised incorruptibly, you're not part of the church. But this body of believers who will be raised incorruptibly, this new creation has Jesus Christ as their head. That is, they are vitally connected to the image of the invisible God. The new creation knows the Father. Another way you could describe the church is all those who know the Father, who the image of the invisible God, the, express, the, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person is their head. They're vitally connected to him. So the old creation has its source, it has its sustenance, and it has its purpose in Jesus. And likewise, the new creation has its source. Why are you a new creation in Christ? Because of Jesus. Why, why do you live and have your being in Christ as a new creation? Because of Jesus. And what's the purpose of you as a new creation? It's Jesus, or the revelation of the Father, to declare him and his glory and his praises. And that we will do forever. But there's no need to wait. If you believe in Jesus Christ, in truth, as he is, taking in all the facts and believing everything that he said about himself, if you believe in him and have known the Father through the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you know God as a God of grace, then you are part of the church and Jesus is your head. And you will spend eternity praising God for the wonders of his love and giving thanks to the Father. If you don't believe in Jesus in this way, you might have a belief in Jesus, a mere belief in Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. You might have a belief in God, but not know the Father. Then you're not part of the church, even if you think you are. So these three things we have seen declared to us about Jesus. He is the revelation of the Father, the purpose of all creation is the revelation of the Father, and the new creation are those who know the Father. So who do you think that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us and giving your son for us and showing us yourself. Though you are invisible, you've given us the image of the invisible God in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have opened up your bosom to us and have welcomed us in close Thank you for your revealing who you are to us through Jesus Christ and his grace and sacrifice on the cross.
if there's anybody that doesn't know you, the Father, I pray that you'd show them that they don't know you. And Lord, if there's any like Philip who have seen you but are confused, I pray that you would show them that they have seen the Father. And may we give thanks to you, God our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for letting us know you, Lord, and that eternal life is in knowing you. We praise you and thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.